How is the health of your domestic church? Welcome back to our series, Healthy Holy Beauty. This is part three. Last week in our fifth layer of discussion on this topic, we emphasized that while our spiritual health is the most important aspect of our health, that then asking if there is a least important aspect between physical, mental, and emotional health is the wrong question. Rather, that we have a responsibility to seek excellence in all four areas of health, especially given the specific, legitimate demands of our vocations as wives. And we also touched on how excellence in health is naturally beautiful, naturally attractive. Now we enter into our sixth layer of discussion. What happens when our health suffers? If excellence in health is naturally beautiful, naturally attractive, does that mean that when our health suffers, we are automatically ugly and repulsive? And of course, the answer is no. And that's easily proven by the fact that so many saints suffered from poor health at the end of their lives. And yet those around them spoke of their beauty in their final moments. So the short answer is no. Failing health is not necessarily ugly and repulsive. But with that said, we do have to ask, what can make failing health ugly and repulsive? And of course, when we use these words, we mean ugly and or repulsive to those who are striving for sainthood and rightly detest sin, not ugly and repulsive to the world, which values the superficial appearance of perfection above anything else. So if we do mean ugly and or repulsive to those who rightly detest sin, then really the simple answer is that failing health is ugly and repulsive when there is sin involved, when sin is the reason for the failing health. The easiest part of this layer of discussion is physical health. If someone is deliberately abusing their own body, that's not attractive. At best, it's pitiful, but it can be really disgusting depending on the type and level of abuse. That's easy enough to understand, but we do need to dig a little deeper with regards to mental and emotional health. As Catholics, we talk a lot about virtues. We talk about the cardinal virtues, which are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. We talk about the theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and charity. And in direct contradiction or response to the seven deadly sins, we have the capital or remedial virtues, which are chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, kindness, patience, and humility. And virtue is really the epitome of spiritual health, right? The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1833, states, quote, Virtue is a habitual and firm disposition to do good, end quote. And what I want to bring to your attention here is that it's possible, it's possible to have a habitual and firm disposition to do good, even when your physical health is failing, again, through no fault, through no sinful action of your own. But a habitual and firm disposition to do good does not allow so much for severely impaired mental or emotional health. Consider this sampling of brief details given for the virtues. This is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1835. Quote, Prudence disposes the practical reason to discern 
in every circumstance our true good and to choose the right means for achieving it, end quote. Well, how, how can you do this? How can you discern what is truly good and choose the right means for achieving that good if you're mentally unhealthy? Or number 1836, quote, justice consists in the firm and constant will to give God and neighbor their due, end quote. Well, how can you do that if you're emotionally unhealthy, if you're prone to hold grudges, for example? Number 1837, quote, fortitude ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. End quote. Okay, well, how can you be firm in the face of difficulty if you're emotionally unstable? And how can you discern the good, much less pursue it, if you're mentally unstable? St. Thomas Aquinas and the church in general, instead of using the word emotions, uses the word passions. And Aquinas clearly states that our passions must be subject to our intellect and our will. But the thing is, how can an unhealthy intellect and therefore a compromised will hope to properly subdue unstable and possibly even sinful passions? So even though there is not a least important aspect of health, there is perhaps theoretically at least um, a least necessary aspect of health in that it is perfectly possible to achieve sainthood even if one's physical health is completely failing. Again, through no sinful fault of one's own. But specific to this conversation with this audience. That has to be balanced by our previous layer of discussion from last week, where we considered the specific demands of our specific vocation as wives, and especially as mothers, where our duties and responsibilities to care for others, and in mothers' cases, very helpless others, uh, demand a reasonable level of physical fitness in order to meet the legitimate needs of those whom God has entrusted to us. So, While theoretically, our physical health might be the least necessary in relation to the other three aspects of health within the context of the pursuit of sainthood, it is in its own right essential for our specific tasks as wives and mothers. Still, what I want you to really take away from this layer of discussion is the importance of mental and emotional health in the pursuit of sainthood how indispensable mental and emotional health are in the attainment and practice of virtue. And we have, up until this point, sought to address these matters of mental and emotional health with the discipline of joy, right? The discipline of joy has been central to our podcast from the get-go, and certainly physical health has come up when we talked about planned and spontaneous rest. But pretty much everything else has been focused on mental and emotional health. Okay, so we've covered six layers of discussion to this topic, healthy, holy beauty. And these six layers have been very much theoretical. Now we start diving into the pragmatic, the application. And I want to preface these subsequent layers of discussion with three quotes. The first two from Carrie Gress's The Anti-Mary Exposed. From chapter nine, quote, There is one stone that has yet to be unturned, when considering the role beauty plays in saving the world, women, end quote. 
And also from chapter nine, a quote which we did already hear for the first time last week, quote, women have a unique gift to draw men and children to them and through them to God, through their beauty, end quote. And finally, a quote which I hope very much that you have memorized by now, given how often we talk about it in this podcast from Pope Pius XII, quote, the woman's role encompasses those countless ceaseless details, those imponderable daily attentions and cares, which create the atmosphere of a family. And depending on whether they are properly performed or not, make the home either healthy, attractive, and comfortable, or demoralized and unbearable, end quote. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, maybe even from the beginning, you know that we firmly believe that the home is the domain of the wife, that regardless of any additional responsibilities outside of the home, that the wife's task to preside over her home is a God-assigned task. If you're new to this podcast, please do go back and start from the beginning. This podcast is pedagogical. Um, We have discussed the value of the hidden life back in episode 11. We discussed the importance of genuinely feminine contributions to society, contributions which are irreplaceable and inimitable by men. In episode 13, we tackled what Pope Pius XII refers to as, quote, the guarantee of holiness, end quote, which is essentially found in seeking to excel in those tasks which are assigned to us by God. We have emphasized repeatedly in many episodes that conformity to the biblical model of marriage is the best and frankly easiest way to get to heaven. We have done our best to present and support and defend that stance. And we have discussed our God-assigned role as wives to be keepers and cultivators of culture in the home. So all of that to say, if you are a long-time listener, you should not be shocked by anything that we're presenting here. Also, a reminder that our objective in any exploration of any topic here on this podcast is always within the context of our larger calling to pursue sainthood, right? Okay. The seventh layer of discussion, which I want to tackle now, is homemaking. Again, if you know me, if you know this podcast, you know that I'm not here to sell you a cleaning system. (laughs) I want to tackle this from the angle of considering our call to pursue sainthood. The home, similar to the individual, has aspects of health. There is the physical health of the home, there is also the mental health, the emotional health, and the spiritual health of the home. The physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health of the presiding wife directly influences the health of the home. And the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health of the home, in turn, directly influences the health of all other persons residing within it. Furthermore, a wife's health is what enables her to attend to that same aspect of health in her home. So her physical health determines her ability to create a physically healthy home. Her mental health determines her ability to create a mentally healthy home and so on with regards to the emotional and spiritual health of the home corresponding to the wife's emotional and spiritual health respectively. Moving forward, In referring to a home which is healthy in all four aspects, I want to use a single word, and that word is haven. 
A haven is a place of refuge and safety for all who reside within it. This idea of a haven is taken directly from our understanding of heaven and the church. The home is called the domestic church, right? And the church on earth is supposed to be a haven for all who claim the faith, for all who claim the church as home. The domestic church, our home, our domain, should mirror the church as a whole. Consider, then, that it is we, the laity, who largely influence how welcoming a parish is perceived to be by a newcomer. Practically no one stays at a parish where they perceive the pastor to be hostile, but neither will most people remain at a parish where even though the priest is perceived as welcoming, the parish as a whole, thanks to the congregation, is perceived as hostile. Shepherding is not controlling. You can have an excellent solid priest and you can have laity who use their free will to make bad choices. You can have a wishy-washy priest and a solid laity. In the same way, you can have an excellent husband and a wife who refuses to see that and to support it. And you can have a husband who needs growth in many areas coupled with a wife who rises bravely to the occasion. In either situation, the head of household remains head of household. It is not their character or capability that determines this, as we've discussed many times before. Now, most women who volunteer a significant amount of time at parishes consider it their privilege to ease the burden of the priests by making sure that the priest does not have to be the one checking the pews after mass for things left behind, that the priest is not the one making up the cleaning schedule or recruiting and training volunteers to fill that schedule. Heck, women love it when it's their turn to make a meal for the priest. And yet there is such unholy, toxic feminist fury at cooking for the man who is ordained head of her own domestic church. Fury at having to be the one to train the children in household tasks and picking up after the inhabitants of the home. See, what's crazy is that the woman who is furious at having jurisdiction over her household not only devalues her husband's work, but also devalues her own. Many wives do not consider their husband's work to be of similar quality and importance to a priest's. But what's crazy is that this also reveals that she does not consider her own work of supporting her husband's ability to complete his God-given tasks as a role of utmost importance. I think many women feel very important when they are leaned upon in their parishes, and yet they detest being leaned on in the home. They have sky-high standards of cleanliness and nutrition when it comes to serving at their parish. But they have deplorable standards of cleanliness and nutrition when serving in their domestic church. This cognitive dissonance is insane. Wives shoot themselves in both feet when they do not hold their husband's role in this world to be of similar quality and importance as the role of their parish priest. Okay, so homemaking. With this perspective that when we speak of homemaking, we are speaking of building your domestic church. And 
that the domestic church ought to be a haven for all who claim residence within it, just as the Catholic Church as a whole ought to be a haven for those who claim the faith. And that in speaking of the home as a haven, we are speaking of a space which is physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually healthy. And that health is attractive, that health is beautiful. And finally, that all of this is to expound upon the responsibility of wives and of mothers to use beauty to draw their husbands and their children ever closer to God. So, the aspects of health in the home. Honestly, the commentary on the spiritual, mental, and emotional aspects of home health are pretty much the same. If you don't have it, you can't model it. And if you can't model it, you can't inspire others to imitate it. All of that comes back to the discipline of joy. Examples. If you sinfully idolize your husband by making your mood dependent on his behavior, you can't really expect your kids to learn to be healthily detached from the behavior of others. If what your children see is that your entire day is completely ruined because your husband did something that annoyed you or he let you down in some way, how can you hope for children to learn that it's not the end of the world when, say, siblings disagree on what game they should play? If you're disrespectful of your husband who has a legitimate God-given authority over you, why would you suppose that your kids would be respectful of your God-given authority over them? All of this should sound very familiar from past episodes. The commentary on the physical health of the home is the one that I want to zone in on in this seventh layer of discussion. And sure, the basic commentary is the same. If you're a slob, you can't expect your kids to be otherwise, right? fine. But I want to dig deep on this. In terms of physical health, what makes home a haven to a husband and to children? And I think that the most important thing to really internalize is the difference between cleanliness and sterility. Once again, taking our cue from the church and the understanding that the domestic church ought to mirror the church as a whole, I hope that you have had the opportunity to walk into many beautiful churches. If you are the type who thinks that all really beautiful churches are only found in Europe, I'm going to give a shout out to my brother here, uh, known as the Church Wanderer who documents through photography beautiful churches, and most of what he has documented so far are found in the United States. You can find his work on Facebook. His handle is at the Church Wanderer, not just Church Wanderer, which I believe is taken by someone else. It is the Church Wanderer. Uh, T is in Tom, H-E, C is in Charlie, H-U-R, C is in Charlie, H, W A. N is a Nancy, D is a dog, E-R-E-R. What I want to point out is that beautiful, clean churches do not scare you away from utilizing the space as it is meant to be used. Right? Now, in a season of life, Uh, When you have toddlers, (laughs) you might be anxious about keeping them from trying to dive headfirst into the baptismal font. Um, But when you walk into a beautiful and obviously very clean church, 
you don't feel discouraged from sitting down. You don't feel discouraged from kneeling, from walking around and praying at the feet of various saints, from lighting candles, from temporarily cluttering up your pew with coats and the baby's car seat and the diaper bag. The cleanliness facilitates the use of the space for its proper purpose. It's cleanliness, again, taking into account certain seasons of life, such as having toddlers, it's cleanliness does not discourage you from worshiping there. The difference between cleanliness and sterility is that sterility discourages living. And cleanliness does not. Again, I'm, I'm not here to sell you a cleaning system, but we do need to talk about cleanliness in the home because the cleanliness of the home is indicative of the health of the home. And health, as we've established, is beautiful. That quote from Pope Pius XII talks about the home needing to be, quote, healthy, attractive, and comfortable, end quote, versus, quote, demoralized and unbearable, end quote. You have a responsibility to keep your home reasonably clean in order to facilitate the health of everyone within it, including yourself. The link between cleanliness and health is well established by science. I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time on that here because I think the information is out there and it's general common sense at this point. This is not groundbreaking information. So Here's an example, however, of cleanliness versus sterility, which is what I do want to discuss with you. If immediately after cleaning up the kid's playroom, you get stressed out and angry with your kids for immediately wanting to utilize the clean space for playing again, for inevitably messing up the playroom again, then there's a problem if this is your attitude towards your kid's playroom, that you're immediately stressed out and angry and discouraged when toys come out again as soon as you've finished cleaning, then consider how much worse is it for the kids? Their vocation is play. And if they're being discouraged from playing, from fulfilling their proper age-appropriate vocation within their own space, how demoralizing, how unbearable for them. Or another example, if you, if your clean kitchen makes you not want to cook anything because you don't want to make a mess in it, then there's a problem. I attended five years of culinary school and so I know, <laughs> I know that many of you are thinking it would be impossible to have a kitchen that invites you to make another mess once it is clean. But I'm telling you, based on my years in culinary school and my years in the food industry, there is a difference between cleanliness and sterility. Our kitchen classrooms in the college were set up for making messes multiple times a day, big messes, insanely huge messes. And they were set up so that no matter how big the mess, we could clean it all up in the last 20 minutes of class. If in your home there are spaces where making the normal messes of living becomes intolerable to you, then there's something 
wrong. That's not physical health. If your home is stifling, if cleanliness comes at the expense of living a normal life, of using spaces for their proper purposes, that's called sterility and it is to be avoided. Next, let's talk about functionality. In kitchens, we call it mise en place, which means everything in its place. A little thought experiment. Think of a place that you frequent, but find it difficult to relax in. Right now, for me, that's any place that is not baby proof. I have two toddlers, both still working very heavily on risk assessment. Um, And my third child has just in the past week started using anything she can to pull herself up into a standing position. And so I find it hard to relax in places where I could lose sight of my child or in places where there are many sharp corners or places where the crawling space is heavily restricted, right? That's my current season of life. That's where I feel stressed out. I'm on high alert. And if I'm sharing that non-childproofed space with other people, Not only is it difficult for me to relax myself, it's very difficult for me to be present to those other people because I'm preoccupied and I'm tensed up. In short, a non-childproofed space is not a haven to me right now in this particular season of my life. I have a theory about the fad of having creative spaces in workplaces. Um, It's such a selling point, right? This workplace has a coffee bar and sleeping pods and a curly slide and standing desks and a game room. I have a theory about these creative spaces. That these creative spaces are indicative of two things. The first is the desire in every human heart to have a haven a place of safety and refuge. And the second thing, which I think creative spaces in workplaces indicate, is the miserable demise of good homemaking in our culture at large. I theorize that the reason creative spaces in workplaces have trended so heavily is precisely because the overwhelming majority of employees who utilize these creative spaces do not have a haven in their own home. Their own home is not a haven. It is not a place where they're able to relax, to be fully present, to be quite free. Now, in your thought experiment, if you came to the same conclusion that I do, which is that any place that is not a haven limits my ability to be fully present to others around me, limits my ability to enjoy myself and to be myself, then consider this. It is your job to create a haven for everyone living within your home. If you fail to do so, what kind of atmosphere are you allowing to exist within your home? If everyone in the house is tense, is preoccupied, if everyone in the home is uncomfortable and demoralized, how hard is that on you? See, the knee-jerk reaction of many women when hearing about their role in creating a haven for others is that creating that haven for others comes at the expense of having a haven themselves. Because they're so terribly overburdened in trying to accomplish such a goal. And I want to challenge you on that because I think that the first person who benefits from creating a haven for others is the creator. 
So going back to the playroom example, we are in the process of moving just now. We just bought our first house. And near the end of our apartment lease, I decided that I was thoroughly fed up with the existing playroom and that I needed to come up with a solution which would address its constant trashed state. I was struggling to strive for cleanliness versus sterility. After doing some research, I realized that maybe I was asking too much of my kids and expecting them to try to clean their playroom. And to test this theory, I spreadsheeted their toys. Yes, I'm one of those people who believes that spreadsheeted and spreadsheeting are verbs. <laughs> I spreadsheeted their toys and discovered that they had no less than 42 distinct toys or toy types. Now, if I had 42 kitchen appliances with multiple parts that needed to be cleaned up and organized after every single meal, I don't know about you, but I would go absolutely insane. So when we moved into this new house, I resolved that I would start rotating toys and limiting their available toys to just enough to fit into a nine cubby shelf. So each cubby has only one toy or toy type in it. Um, and the playroom in our new house is now consistently the cleanest room in the entire house. Yes, we're still in the middle of moving, but it's the cleanest room in the house because I've achieved that mise en place in this room. Everything has a place. Nine cubbies is apparently some kind of magic number for my toddlers. They are currently four and two. They are able to clean up their room entirely by themselves with zero hovering from me. I can tell them, hey, when you clean up your room, then we can go play outside. Or then we can go to Mimi and Bobby's. Or then we can read some books together. And I leave for 10 or 15 minutes and come back to a clean playroom. My tasks within their room are vacuuming occasionally because we don't allow food in their playroom so we don't have to vacuum every day. Hubby takes their trash out and my toddlers are currently learning to dress themselves. Uh, my four-year-old can take off and put on his own shirt and shorts and sometimes shoes and the only thing he still needs help with consistently are his socks. So they have a clothes hamper, which I empty out daily for them. They can't make their beds yet, but they know what belongs on their bed. And that's a great starting point. And then I have once in a blue moon stuff like washing their curtains and flipping their mattresses. But this room is now a haven for both them and for myself. They can pull out all the toys all at once if they really want to. And I don't care because they're going to clean it up. They have been enabled to be perfectly capable of cleaning it up themselves. So now it's a safe place for them. They don't get told off for anything that they do in their playroom. And it's a safe place for me. I can walk into that playroom and be equally relaxed. We can all be more fully engaged, more fully present to each other. And the first person who benefits from creating that haven for my kids is me. The first person who benefits from creating Haven for others is the creator. If you have children, I encourage you to do research. What makes a space comfortable for them? What my research has led me to believe is that kids are comfortable in spaces where they feel capable and independent and free. So another example, our new house actually has a dining room. And so we've split up that dining room into an adult portion and a kid's portion. 
The kids portion has their kid sized table. It has their kitty plates and cups and utensils, all easily accessible for them. And it has their snacks in containers, which um, they can serve themselves from. Occasionally, my two-year-old still needs help with lids, but how much more relaxed are they versus when I was doing everything for them and constant nagging from them would get on my nerves. We would all be a mess. Think about a child trying to feed themselves soup while sitting in a giant chair that brings their chin just a couple of inches higher than the table. How stressful for them, how much pressure to eat cleanly and neatly in an environment working entirely against them. How helpless and frustrated they feel when they can't even see into the bowl of soup to make sure they're getting soup into their spoon. And they're not allowed to stand on their chair. So we've done our best to change that dynamic, giving them a kid-sized dining space, and it even has a little hand broom and dustpan. And my four-year-old has demonstrated on a few separate occasions now that he's perfectly capable of sweeping up his own mess if he happens to spill some cereal on the floor. We're still working on it, you know? This idea of mise en place and distinguishing and striving for cleanliness versus sterility is something that I've achieved in exactly one room in our new house. And that's the playroom, which is crazy because in our apartment, it used to be the room that was most stressful for me. The place where I felt most helpless and anxious and frustrated. Um, And I'm just, I gotta tell you, I'm looking forward to achieving this sense of haven in every other room of our new house. The combination of cleanliness versus sterility and optimized functionality result in the physical health of a home, of the domestic church. This is what I would love for you to take away from the seventh layer of discussion. But we're not quite done. I talked a lot about kids just now, but of course I hope you would expect it. I want to close out this week's installation by talking about your husband and what physical health of the home means to him. Women get very upset when it is suggested that they have a responsibility to keep the home clean out of respect for their husband. I don't believe that the upset is warranted, but I do understand being a mom of three kids under five right now, that there are seasons of life, uh, such as immediately postpartum, where it is not really realistic to expect a woman to be at the top of her game with regards to the cleanliness of the home. I'm not ignoring that, I'm not discounting it. But two things here, firstly, I want to emphasize that giving yourself grace is not the same as abdicating responsibility. I don't think I need to say more on that here. We've talked a lot about that in past episodes. But second, I want to suggest a practical tip for lightening your own load in a way which is thoroughly respectful and appropriate. And that practical tip is this. Give your husband a space in your home in which he has the complete and total freedom to dictate how to make it comfortable for himself. When it comes to women who complain about how their husband works late or is always out fishing in his free time or is always taking business trips, I'm willing to bet that the reason the husband spends so much time outside of the house is because he does not find his own house to be a haven. 
And it's very difficult for him to do so when within the house, there is no space which is properly his own. Where he can control what is in that space, how that space is arranged, what that space is used for, and who is allowed inside of it. My maternal grandfather had his spaces. He had his garden and he had the bed in the guest bedroom where he sorted his mail and consequently left his mail out and got very upset when anyone touched the mail. So it wasn't really usable at all as a guest bedroom. But those two spaces, which were his, were the spaces where I remember him spending the bulk of his time. My dad spends the bulk of his time working on the vehicles, working out in the backyard, playing basketball in the front driveway, training in martial arts in the basement, and working now in his work from home corner, which was established a few months into the pandemic. These are his spaces. He controls these spaces. So he spends the most time in these spaces. And really, if he's anywhere else in the house, he's either cleaning or sleeping. In our second apartment near the end of our lease, I was so sorry that it took me so long to figure this out. We were doing some rearranging of furniture and my husband quipped something to the effect of how he really liked the new arrangement so much because he felt more like he lived there. And gosh, that hurt my pride. But at that point, I also had the sense to let it break my heart. How many of our husbands feel like they don't live in their own home? Because they have no space which is properly their own. It does something for you to have a space which you have full control over. It does something for your children to have a space in which they're free to exercise age-appropriate control. Well... Guess what? Your husband needs that space too. So ladies, commit to giving your husband a space, a good amount of space, which is entirely his domain. You never suggest how to rearrange it. You never offer to decorate it. You never demand that he make that space available to guests or to kids or even to you. Yes, it might end up being a man cave. If you have objections to man caves, please listen to our end of the month podcast from November of last year, 2021, to gain some better perspective there. If a husband has a space within his home, which he feels is dedicated to his decompression and relaxation, a space which is dedicated to his health, he is much more likely to be very appreciative and magnanimous regarding the rest of the house. He'll be able to appreciate your efforts in decorating and organizing and cleaning if there is at least one significant space inside the house, inside, not the garden, not the garage. If there is at least one significant space inside the house where he is free to try his own hand at those same things, no, he will not organize or decorate or clean according to your standards or style. And he'll probably spend a lot more time in there than you would like when you initially make this commitment to respect his space. But when you're able to let go of that, I want to encourage you. You will see a whole nother side to your husband. It'll be incredible and it'll do wonders for your marriage. 
We'll stop here for this week, ladies. I'm looking forward to having you join me next week for part four of Healthy Holy Beauty. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.